Well, with, uh, with today being the first Sunday of Advent, of course, the time of year when we, we focus upon and we celebrate the, the anticipated arrival of, of Jesus upon the earth, I want us to, to begin this morning by thinking back to, uh, to times in our lives when we experienced the birth of a child. So it could be our own children, our grandchildren, it could be uh, the birth of a niece or a nephew or a sibling or cousin, whoever that might be. Due to the manner in, in which a, a mother's pregnancy progresses, it creates kind of a natural sense of anticipation, doesn't it? Uh, because human pregnancies are basically uniform in length, we often have a good sense of when the child will be born. You know, you have a due date, right? You can circle it on the calendar and look forward to that date, anticipate it coming. Um, because a child's growth in his or her mother's womb leads to a growing belly for the mother, we can, we can visually see the child's growth taking place, even though we can't actually see the child yet. So that kind of creates some anticipation. Uh, because once the, the child is born, they don't stop growing. They don't stop maturing. They continue to do so up until their death. Uh, it causes us to, to ponder and imagine what the child might be like or what they might accomplish in life, things like that. So, so all of those things together make the birth of a, a child a highly anticipated event. And then once that day finally arrives, the, the child makes their way into this world. What are the first two things we always want to know about the child? Right? Firstly, if we don't already know, we want to know the gender. Right? And then, of course, secondly, we want to know the name. Right? I mean, those are the two things that, uh, that we want to know about the child. Well, the birth of the Savior of mankind had been anticipated since the very beginning of history. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Moments after the first sin, the Savior was prophesied to come. As you progress through the Bible, we're confronted again and again with prophecies about the Savior. So there, there's no doubt that the arrival of the Savior of mankind, the arrival of the Messiah, was an event which had been anticipated for generations and centuries. And it was an, it was an event <clears throat> that was especially longed for during the difficult times in the lives of God's people. So, for example, if you would turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, we are, we are given in that section of Scripture one of those points of difficulty. At this point in Israel's history, they have shown themselves over and over again to be people who wander away from God. Um, they've entered into a covenant with him, but they've broken that covenant again and again. And so as a result, God is preparing to bring a foreign nation, the Assyrians, to invade the northern nation of Israel. Um, nothing really seems to have gotten the people's attention at this point. Maybe an all-out invasion would, would do it. Um, so God warned his people through the prophet Isaiah that this invasion was coming. And in Isaiah chapter 8, we see that warning given. 
Now, the Assyrians, uh, they were known for being cruel invaders. So the situation wasn't going to be pleasant. Um, distress, darkness, anguish was coming upon the northern nation of Israel. And we know from hindsight that the foretold invasion did happen. And because of the geography of the region, because of the location of Assyria being up farther in the north, it was the northern tribes of Israel that faced the brunt of that invasion. So when Assyria came down from the north, those northern tribes were the first to be overcome. And not only did Assyria invade and destroy there first, but they exiled many of the people, and they brought in their own people to settle the area as well. And they continued to oppress that area for years to come through their constant presence. So it, it was truly going to be, and, and indeed ended up being, a dark time for those northernmost tribes in Israel. And so when Isaiah ends chapter 8 and says that they will be thrust into thick darkness, he's not kidding. That is indeed what ended up happening. But, but if the people would listen to Isaiah, they would know that in the midst of that darkness, there would be hope. So if you look with me at chapter 9, we see that message of hope spoken. Starting in verse 1, Isaiah says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. We'll stop right there for now. So Zebulun and Naphtali, those are two of those northern tribes. Uh, and not coincidentally, they are the two tribal regions in which the towns of Nazareth, which is Jesus' future hometown, and Capernaum, Jesus' future base of operations during his, during his uh, ministry, those are the two tribes where those two towns uh, could be found. So even though there was great darkness upon those areas, coming upon those areas, prophesied, it wasn't going to stay that way forever. And that's what Isaiah says. And look, at, look as he goes on in verse 2. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, now as we go throughout this Advent season, we're going to come back to some of those powerful prophetic descriptions in those verses. Uh, we'll look at them a little more closely then. But, but for now, it's sufficient to recognize that, that a light is promised to come. In this northern region and these northern tribes, this great darkness is descending upon them, but light will come. But how? 
how will this light come out of such intense darkness? And that's where we get to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So how is this light coming out of such darkness? A son is born. A son is born. That answers the first question we always want to know, right, about uh, babies when they're born. A son is born. But what about that second question? What's the name of this anticipated child? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's a pretty long name, isn't it? That's a long name, but a name packed with significance. Uh, it's a name packed with so much significance that we're going to spend four weeks studying it. Okay, uh, that was a name that mattered in Isaiah's time as the northern nation of Israel faced the imminent Assyrian invasion. But it's a name that still matters in our time today, right? We don't fear the Assyrians coming from the north. We're not in that context. But there is plenty surrounding us that is concerning when we look at our context, right? And so for that reason, we too can find hope in this son with a long name, just like God's people then could have found hope through what Isaiah was prophesying to them. So the first part of the name of this son, which we're going to look at this morning, is Wonderful Counselor. Now, if you've, if you've studied the Spanish language at all, you know that in Spanish, the way things work is it's common for the noun to be written or spoken first and then the adjectives to come after that, right? That's just kind of how it works. So, so for example, if white shoe, in English, we would say white shoe. In Spanish, it would be zapato blanco, right? You'd shoe first, zapato, and then blanco, white. So, uh, you know, uh, and even though I don't speak a whole lot of Spanish, I had to look up what white shoe was just to make sure. But, but uh, it always made a lot of sense to me doing it that way. I mean, don't I need to know what is being referenced before I know what it's like. I mean, it just kind of makes sense to me to put uh, the noun first. If we're talking about a white shoe, don't I first want to know it's a shoe before I know it's white? And so, yet again, the English language shows us that it's just trying to be confusing, so it can be difficult, right? But, but for as tempting as it might be to switch around the name today and talk about the noun first, talk about counselor first, and then come back to wonderful, I do want to stick with the way it is in English language, wonderful counselor. And, and the reason I want to look at wonderful first is because it, as we study what makes God wonderful, we'll come to see that he's indeed qualified to be our counselor. And, and not only that, I think that because of his wonder, it makes us long for him to be our counselor. So 
So we'll do it in that order. So focusing first upon wonderful. I, I do think we have to admit that that word, wonderful, is a word that we use pretty cavalierly in our daily lives. We might say a statement like, that pie was wonderful, or that, that my sleep last night was wonderful, or I had a wonderful trip to the zoo, right? But, but in any of those circumstances, do, do we really mean that we are filled with wonder? Is that really what we are meaning when we say that? I mean, maybe if we've never had pie before and then had one, maybe, right? Maybe if we've not gotten a full night's sleep for a couple decades, maybe we really mean that. But what we probably mean when we say wonderful is that something was really good or that we really enjoyed it. That's, that's, that's how we use the word typically. That's not what Isaiah means. When Isaiah says wonderful counselor, He's using that word as it is intended to be used. To be full of wonder means that when we experience something, we marvel at its beauty that we can't replicate ourselves. It means that we tremble at the power of it, which we cannot emulate. It means that, that, that we try to understand the fullness of it, but, but we just aren't able to do so. We are... That's what it means to be full of wonder. That's the type of response that our God ought to receive from us when we, when we think about him, when we explore him. I mean, there's, there's so many reasons why we ought to be full of wonder at God. For starters, uh, we'll, just, we'll talk about a few this morning. God's wonder is seen in his creation. Uh, David was filled with wonder as he penned these words in Psalm chapter 8. Let me read this for you. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And I think what, what David is uh, drawing to our attention there is it. A great way to experience wonder is to lay out under the stars and stare up into the heavens and just marvel at God's might, marvel at his creativity. Um, and, it, and it really doesn't matter that our collective knowledge of the universe continues to grow. The fact that we understand it now more than we did yesterday and the day before that, that no matter how much we discover, we, we, uh, we find more things yet to be understood about our universe. And, I, I, and in fact, I think you can argue our increased understanding of the created world ought to lead to increased wonder as we increase in our discovery of its complexities. It's like we learn one thing and we find there's two other things that we can marvel at. And so uh, no matter how scientifically advanced we we are or will be as human beings, we can and should wonder at God's creation. His eternal power, his divine nature are clearly seen in creation. And, and Paul says, so, so we are without excuse then. We are without excuse in recognizing that there is a God, but also without excuse in standing in wonder before him. So we see God's wonder in creation. We see his wonder in his works among his people. 
again from Psalms. In Psalm 77, this is a psalm of Asaph, but he talks about God's works. He says in 77 verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders, and you have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. The psalm writer there is standing in awe before God. He is wondering at God's works that have been displayed. Uh, the very next psalm, another psalm of Asaph, 78, it speaks about God's wonder performed at the Exodus and in the feeding of God's people in the wilderness. Um, Isaiah talks in Isaiah 25.1, and uh, he says that, that we would praise God's name because he has done wonderful things, plans from of old, faithful and sure. I mean, the Old and the New Testament uh, it's filled with a record of events in which God worked in a mighty way for the glory of his name and the benefit of his people. The Bible is full of these works. Likewise, we, I, we can and we should look back in our own lives and we can see God's works on display. And as we do that, it, it, it ought to lead us to a place of wonder. We ought to be filled with wonder when we think about not just what God has done in creation, but the specific works within creation and within our own lives as well. And then another reason is, is we draw near to Christmas, God's wonder is seen in the incarnation. We think about the Christmas story. Uh, on the night of Jesus' birth, angels appeared to the shepherds in the field and told them that the Savior, the Messiah, was born. And they could, they could find this incredibly exalted individual lying in a humble manger. And so when the shepherds went to see this newborn Messiah, they told all those present about the angels and the proclamation that the angels had given. And Luke records for us in chapter 2, verse 18, that all who heard what the shepherds told them wondered at it. They were full of wonder at what was taking place, at the testimony of the shepherds. They were in wonder over the paradox that, a, that such a mighty Messiah would be lying helplessly in a manger. It filled them with wonder. John writes in his gospel that, that the Word, the divine God himself, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God's glory in all its fullness is seen in the God-man, in Jesus. The immensity of that reality ought to stir up wonder within us. Uh, you know, we, we hear Christmas referred to as the season of wonder. And I think it's exactly right. It is. We, we ought to wonder at, at the marvel of it. When Isaiah prophesies that the child to be born is to be called Wonderful Counselor, he says that about the God who cannot be any more worthy of our wonder than he already is. He truly is wonderful. And, and, and I, believe, I believe we will be discovering new 
reasons to wonder before God for all of eternity. But even, even so, now we can, we can begin to grasp the wonder of God here and now. So uh, pie, pie is not truly wonderful, right? A good night's sleep is not truly wonderful. God himself is truly and ultimately wonderful. And as such, then, he's qualified to be our counselor. You know, if, if we think back to the context of Isaiah chapter 9, there was surely a lot of uncertainty among God's people regarding what they ought to do in light of this impending Assyrian invasion. And, and, and we too, again, we're not facing the Assyrians coming at us, but we face situations on a regular basis where we are in need of discernment and direction. And, and, and there's lots of reasons that, that that is our reality as humans, that we need a counselor. First, and maybe foremost, we, we, we need a counsel. We, we are in need of counsel in light of our fallenness, right? our, our sinful nature. Jeremiah reminds us that, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And, and the heart to which Jeremiah refers is a heart stained by sin. He warns us of the dangers there. He, he reminds us that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. And so we have to look at ourselves, we have to humbly admit that like alcohol makes it impossible for a drunken person to walk in a straight line under their own strength, our sinful nature makes it impossible to walk the correct path in our own understanding. We just, we can't do it. Paul states in Romans 1 that, that God gives the rebellious over to the lusts of their hearts. And, and when you go on to read the descriptions of what the sinful heart lusts for, it is truly depressing and scary, really. Each one of us is, is in need of counsel, of wise counsel, due to the sinful nature that we have inherited and then in addition to that, it's not just our own sinful nature, but we need counsel in light of Satan's schemes and his attacks directed toward us. Uh, Paul makes reference to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says this to the church there. Uh, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So when we look back at the, uh, the creation story, we know that Satan directly opposed Eve in the Garden of Eden and deceived her into thinking that it was for her best interest that she eat the fruit from the tree which God had forbidden her to eat from. Satan made something that was truly harmful to her seem like it would be good for her. And Paul's fear for the, the Corinthian believers is that Satan will deceive them and lead them astray just like he did in the Garden of Eden with Eve. He does all he can to make the bad look good. Uh, I mean, turn on the TV or, or, or watch a movie and 
How many times is the bad made to look good? We are bombarded with that in our world today. That, that's Satan's attempts. He, he whispers the thought into our ear that, that such a little sin can't possibly cause that much harm. And, and even if it does, the pleasure's worth it. I mean, that, that's what he whispers to us. He strives to make the bad look good. And then conversely, he, he strives to make the good look bad. And Paul's words just a bit earlier in 2 Corinthians talks about that in chapter 4. He says in chapter 4, verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan takes the good and tries to make it look bad. Don't give your life to Jesus, Satan says. The, the life of, of a Christian's a miserable life, he says. Uh, you'll never have any fun anymore, right? Uh, God won't bring you the peace you seek, Satan says. You're, you're too far gone. You've, you've, you've sinned too much to be saved. I mean, these are, these are the lies that Satan tells us, striving to make the good, the love of God, the hope of the gospel, look bad. He blinds people from seeing that light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He, he blinds us from seeing the good of Christ. And, and so because of Satan's activity among us doing these things, we need a wonderful counselor. We need a counselor who will shine the light of truth upon our world so that we can see the good for what it is and see the bad for what it truly is as well. A wonderful counselor will do that for us. Uh, we, we've got a limited perspective. We, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in James chapter 5. When we face hardship or difficulty, we, we need our perspective to be focused upon Jesus, you know, his imminent return that, that, that allows us to patiently endure the hardship that we face. If, if we're left to our own perspective, we will too often fail to walk the path that God has for us. Our, our perspective is not as good as we think it is. We just ought to be honest about that. And there's, there's a great case in point um, in the life of Jeremiah. If you want, you can turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 32. So, so while Isaiah spoke about the imminent Assyrian invasion in northern Israel, Jeremiah speaks uh, over a hundred years later about the imminent Babylonian invasion in southern Judah. And like with the Assyrians, God brought the Babylonians to carry out his purposes. And so at this point in Jeremiah 32, the Babylonian army has surrounded Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Um, the, the Babylonian army was, was vastly superior, but rather than attack Jerusalem and, and risk losing some of, uh, some of their own men, they just simply surround the city and try to starve the people until they surrender. Um, so it was only a matter of time before the city was going to fall. And yet, in the, the, the counsel of God to Jeremiah in that situation was to go out and buy a field. I mean, think about that. Told Jeremiah to go buy a field. Now, if for some reason the Canadian army decided they were going to attack us and they were sweeping their way across the United States, would you be inclined to buy a field from me in that, in that context? 
I mean, you wouldn't, right? There'd be, there'd be just far too many unknowns. Like, why would I go buy a field? I don't know what's going to happen with this war that's taking place. Am I even going to live through it? Or, I mean, you just, you wouldn't, right? It would not be a, a wise investment according to our own understanding, our own perspective. However, God spoke to Jeremiah and said, go buy a field. He told Jeremiah to go buy that field for over a year's wages. And he told Jeremiah to make sure that the purchase was public so that everybody would know about it. Now, now Jeremiah's own personal wisdom and counsel would have never led him to do that. Never. It would have been foolish. But God did. God, in his wisdom and his perspective, told Jeremiah to go buy this field. God wanted a clear message of hope to be seen for his people, a message that he would indeed restore his people and bring them back to that land, that no matter what immediately transpired with the Babylonians, it would be worth it to buy a field because he would bring his people back there once again. I mean, that was God's counsel through Jeremiah. We need God's counsel. We're going to walk the path that he has for us. Psalm 73, I think, I think says it so well, verse 24. It says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. God shares his counsel with us, and we may not know what he's doing in the here and now. But we can know that his counsel will lead us to dwell in his glory. Uh, I can testify there's been times where in my own life I, I didn't understand why God was leading me to do something a certain way. It didn't make sense to me. You know, when I looked at my own perspective, I just didn't get it. But I've been blessed to dimly see in this life how God's purposes were being fulfilled as I walked in obedience. And, and I look forward to seeing those things even more clearly from the perspective of eternal glory. But we need God's counsel due to our own limited perspective of the here and now. And then, and then finally this morning, we need counsel for the simple reason that, that God's wisdom is, is it's just unmatched. We need it because of how good it is, in essence. Paul says in Colossians 2, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he goes on a little bit later to say that, that in Christ dwells the fullness of deity. Because the child to be born is the Son of God, he possesses wisdom that has never been and never will be found in another human being. I mean, he, he doesn't just know the mind of God. He possesses the mind of God. And then in, in addition to that, when we think about Jesus, we know that he can relate to us. Hebrews 2 talks about how Jesus was made like us in every respect. He's, he himself suffered when he was being tempted. So Jesus possesses all wisdom and knows exactly what you and I need because he's human. I mean, that's the kind of counselor that we need. Not just one who has the wisdom, I mean, we need that, but one who knows what wisdom to speak to us, what wisdom should be applied where and when and in what way. And that's, that's Jesus. 
that is the wonderful counselor. So, so the child who's born, the son who is given, that first part of the name fits so rightly. And we're going to see the rest of it does too, but wonderful counselor. He's qualified to give us the counsel that we desperately need. But, but how do we receive it, right? Where the rubber meets the road. That's great. How do we receive this counsel? Again, we just finished our, our series on the book of James. Uh, so I remind us of James' direct statement in chapter 1. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Uh, it doesn't get any more straightforward than that, right? If we, if we need counsel, we should ask the wonderful counselor, and he will give it to us. And so that, that's, that's the short, that's the compact answer. Here's, here's the longer answer. Still, still saying exactly the same thing, but, but I, want to, I want to end our time by, by reading the same passage that Dave read earlier in the service. Again, we think, how do we receive this wisdom from the wonderful counselor? Proverbs 2 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, and in making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked, who are devious in their ways. As he says, the Lord gives wisdom. The wonderful counselor guides us, gives us wisdom through his written word to us. I mean, this is one of the ways. The wonderful counselor also guides us through his spirit dwelling within us. So in a world struggling with information overload, that is our world, may we set aside that, that wisdom from below again, like we talked about in the book of James, may we set that aside and take in the wisdom from above, which comes from our wonderful counselor. We think about Isaiah's words. He says, for to us, to you and me, a child is born. To us, to you and me, a son is given. Government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It's a name truly fitting for this son that was born. 
Would you stand with me? Let's, let's come before God in prayer. Let's give him thanks and receive him as well as this wonderful counselor that he is. God, as we read your word this morning, we, we thank you for this message of hope that was delivered so long ago to your people facing such difficulty, the darkness that was, that was coming down upon them. And God, uh, there's no doubt we find, our time, we find ourselves in dark times in our own lives. We need hope. We need this light as well. May we also look to these words to find that hope and that light. We thank you that, that this child that was born is the wonderful counselor. God, we're, we're, in, we're in such need of that in our lives. I thank you that you supply it for us. May we, may we receive it. May we seek it. Open ourselves to it, God. As a church body, may we be encouraging one another in this to speak your words of wisdom, your words of counsel, to encourage each other to walk in them. God, I praise you that that even though that, that name was given to you thousands of years ago, that it still is as true today as it was then. People have been trying to prove it false and have been unable to do so. And we thank you for that. Thank you that you're not just called the Wonderful Counselor, but that you really are. So would you guide us? Would you direct us? Would you help us to recognize your wisdom for the goodness that it is? God, and as we return to singing now, may we, may we stand in wonder before you. God, in awe of your character, of your works, of your love for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.